And so we're going to be this morning in Luke 24. It may be a familiar passage for you. It's the road to Emmaus. Uh, Did you know that in Luke's gospel, uh, after Jesus resurrects from the dead, there are three accounts that he gives us, uh, and only three, various people and appearing to them in his post-resurrection body. Only three. And so Luke also tells us in the book of Acts that he, he was with his disciples and appearing among them for 40 days before he ascends into heaven. And so what that means is for Luke to only choose three of these stories in his gospel, that there's something about them, that he's not just picking them like haphazardly or willy-nilly, that that though they did actually happen, there must be something essential about what it means to walk with Jesus. And so we're going to look at that this morning. What does it mean to be uh, people on this side of the resurrection who are walking with Jesus And what does it mean in particular in this passage when we're struggling, struggling to recognize him in our walk with Jesus? What are the implications and what are we to do? And so if you look with me in Luke chapter 24, we're going to read verses 13 through 35. That very day, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, saying, stay with us for it's towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem 
And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had known to them, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This ends God's reading, or this ends the reading of God's word. And so we're going to dive in this morning. You know, it's been a while actually since I've had the opportunity to be up here and to preach. And so I was trying to think of like a really powerful illustration to kind of come back in with and, and reorient myself. And I was struggling, and, and then I sort of remembered that, you know, Jesus, he really didn't put a lot of pressure on himself with these kinds of things. In fact, he was really okay with simple stories like, hey, once upon a time there was a woman. She had 10 coins, and she lost one of them. And then in her distress, she searched the house, she found it, and when she found it, she threw a huge party. I mean, it's so simple and so profound. And that's all we need. So I was thinking, hey, where can I find the most simple and yet profound story to share with you? And lo and behold, it was Instagram. The Instagram reels. I mean, what could be more profound? And so Melissa, my wife, was showing me one this week while there was this poor woman, and she was carrying this small sleeping baby in one of her arms. And with, with her other arm, she was going around and cleaning the house. She was like wiping the end table, you know, and folding laundry. And then she looked into the pack and play, and the baby was gone. And so she started to freak out in this panic. She's running around the house, distressed, all the while she's carrying the baby with her. And so I thought to myself, here it is, this, this distressed person looking for someone really, really important. All the while, she, had, she was walking right there. That's what's happening in our passage. It's two distressed disciples looking for someone really important. All the while, he's right there with them. I mean, isn't that awesome? And you think these sermons just write themselves. No, <laughs> this, is, this is crazy stuff that we're doing here. I have to admit, though, that that experience um, is so characteristic of my life. I hope that you guys can relate. I mean, is this true of, uh, for you at all? Glasses, keys, purse, cell phone, wallet. It's like it's totally missing, and then for some reason, it's like right in front of our eyes. How often does this happen? I don't even want to make eye contact with my wife right now because she knows. Like, it... it, it where are my glasses? They're on your face. I wish I knew where my keys were. They're in your hands. And so as befuddling and common and confusing as that experience is for me as a human being, I think it's all the more distressing and problematic and alarming that somehow this could be true of my life spiritually, that this could be true of the church of Jesus Christ, that somehow we could be described as seeing but not seeing. What is it about us where we have the greatest truth of the resurrection, like right in front of our faces, and yet we're not stirred by it? That we hear of the crucified and risen Jesus week after week after week, and yet somehow our affections and our desires aren't fanned into flame and moved into action. You know, this past week, I was actually meeting with the guys in my discipleship group. And when I went into the meeting this Tuesday morning, I said, guys, I, I just need prayer because I don't know what it is, but I can just tell you right now, 
I am, I am just going through the motions. I'm just showing up at stuff. You know, I, I'm getting ready to teach on Sunday. I, I've got Wednesday night with the youth. I'm trying to teach for that. And for some reason, I can just tell that the things I'm looking at on the pages of Scripture are not informing my heart. My heart is not alive to them. I am seeing, but I am not seeing, and I need prayer. Do you ever sense that in your spiritual life? Do you ever feel like that, that, that you're seeing without seeing? And I, I would say if, if that's where you are, or if you're ever there, then this is one of those good news passages. And so I want to start with number one. I, I just want to look at this extraordinary and beautiful love of God. That's what I want to turn our, our thoughts to first. I, I just want to, us to take a minute. I want us to take a minute to just sort of meditate. I want us to meditate on the love of Christ for disheartened and disillusioned and distressed disciples. We know they're discouraged and distressed because of what we read. On their, they're on their way back to this home village of Emmaus. And in verse 17, Jesus is asking them about the nature of their conversation. And it says that they stopped walking. They stood still. Their faces fell and they looked sad. They were downcast, confused by what's transpired. In verse 21, it tells us that their hope was deferred. Okay? And yet, here is Christ, and I want you to think about this. On the very day of his resurrection, he's going out to meet with him. If you were to somehow imagine how Christ would spend the first day in his newly resurrected body, what would you picture him doing? If you had never heard this story before, how would you say resurrection day one is going to go? I mean, if I'm writing this story, he's probably going to the temple, Right? And he's going to point to that veil, that shroud, that curtain that was torn in two and say, you guys see the significance now of what I did? Or, or maybe for sure first stop is to go see mothers and brothers, his family who had been in agony at the cross just a couple days ago. For sure he's going to go meet with the eleven. At least Peter and John. I mean, these are the future leaders of the movement. We've got to celebrate. You can imagine how Badly he wanted to go celebrate and reveal himself to him. But instead, I want you to see this, that instead of any of that, he goes on a slow seven-mile walk with two unnamed people, previously anywhere in Scripture, two disciples that we will not hear of again in Scripture. It's not his family. It's not Jewish leaders. It's not the chosen 11. It's two humble, unknown disciples who are struggling with doubt and, and discouragement and disillusionment. This seems so inefficient to me, so unstrategic. It's a journey that, that lasts all day. They invite him in, and he ends up spending the meal with them. It's dark. Do you understand that what you do with your time, what you do with your time says something about your affections and your passions and what's most important to you. And so what does this say to you about the love of Christ? It says he's not in a hurry. He's not in the crowds. He is with two people who he's been with before, but they can't recognize them because of their spiritual myopia. They're struggling, struggling to believe. And this is the thing that Jesus chooses to do with his time. 
He walks with them. He asks them questions. He draws out their heart. He puts his finger on the root of their pain. He's patient with them. He's direct, but he's compassionate. He takes time to teach them. And when they ask him to stay longer, he eats with them. He changes his plans. He feeds them and brings them to a place of restoration. How great and amazing and different is the love of Christ. It's so surprising to us until we remember that actually this is what Christ has always come to do, to accomplish. It's his main work. It's what he's been about the whole time. This unhurried, careful pursuit born out of compassion and love for people that are struggling to see him for who he is. The woman at the well, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. Listen to the words of Zechariah at the beginning of Luke as he prophesies about the advent of Jesus. He says in verses 178 through 79, because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. And so what motivates him to send new light for those who are spiritually blind? It's his love. It's his merciful compassion. This isn't some like divine intervention, as we like to call them. Some curveball out of left field in his schedule that he's got to like reorient himself for. This is what he's come to do, to shine light into the hearts of those who are losing hope in the shadow of death by taking a walk with them, sharing a meal with them, restoring them to truth and love, and bringing them to a place of fresh discovery of the good news. And so that means that in the economy of God's kingdom, there are no incidental moments. There are no insignificant disciples, especially when we're struggling. There's no such thing as more important things to do. Your restoration, the nurturing of your faith, the opening of your eyes, your sanctification is the main work. It's his passion. It's what he's come to do. And so there really is this encouragement, I think, for us in the love of God, the merciful, merciful compassion And as one commentator puts it, there's something of a model for us in this passage for all of the Christian life, and it's wrapped up in the experience of these two disciples that I think that we can really get some help for. And so I want you to see number two, the cause of their confusion, because we've got to understand why are they struggling to recognize Jesus? Why in light of all this stuff that he's doing for them, Is it taking so long for them to figure out who he is? Isn't it fascinating that Cleopas and his friend, that it takes them so long to discover? I mean, they're on this long walk, and it's not until after they have this meal that their eyes are opened. This is really one of those, the answer is staring you right in front of your face. It's it's a classic seeing without seeing. And so on the one hand, there seems to be really something different about Jesus's resurrection body where it's been transformed. And so I would expect that when we have a resurrection body, there's going to be a new glory about us that somehow would make us almost unrecognizable if you could see us. But it seems that also there's this reality that Luke is trying to point to 
that's causing confusion for them, that because they didn't recognize the events that had just occurred, his suffering and death and crucifixion, because they hadn't tied those things in to the story of God's redemption, then they were having a hard time seeing Jesus for who he really was. And so I think the key to seeing where their confusion comes from is in verses 20 and 21. After recounting that Jesus is a great prophet in verse 19, that he had done all these miraculous things, they're getting some things right, but now listen to verse 20 and 21. He says, Our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So this is the moment like when they lay their cards on the table and their hearts are exposed. They said, in our version of the word redeem and redemption, that does not include a crucified Messiah. They, they had been thinking about and dreaming about all these prophecies about Jesus in a totally different direction. You think about the prophecy from Zechariah we just read. In those verses, it also says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Salvation from our enemies and rescue from all who despise us. And so you see that the word redeem originally meant to be released or delivered out of slavery or bondage and restored to freedom. But the version of the redemption that Cleopas and so many others have is that that meant a rescue from Roman slavery. The Romans who overtaxed them and ruled over them and limited their freedoms and made life incredibly difficult for them socially and politically and religiously and financially. And so in their version of redemption, Jesus suffering and condemned to death on a cross ruled out the possibility that he could be the Messiah. And so they're losing hope. You see, they can't see him for who he truly was because of their inability to see Christ's suffering and death as the apex moment of their redemption meant that they couldn't see him in all his glory. Now triumphant over death, walking alongside them in newness of life. And, and I want to say that this is when the story this is when this starts to come home for us. When they begin to realize what they thought and hoped redemption was really going to look like for them, Jesus calls them on it in a really pointed way. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Jesus is saying the reason you're having trouble not seeing me for who I am right now is not because you have a failure to understand it or get the idea. It's because your heart is in neutral. You don't want to get it. You're slow of heart. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this word in, his, in the message, this rebuke from Jesus. He says, ah, so thick-headed means you're stubborn and so slow-hearted. That's the problem. Our hearts are slow. And so you see the word translated for heart in our Bible. What does that refer to? It always refers to our innermost commitments and desires. It points to the attitudes, the dispositions, the dreams of a person that determine our lives. 
And so whenever there is a failure of heart insight from a biblical perspective, it's coming from a failure to embrace the ways of God, a failure to embrace God's version of redemption. And God's version of redemption means that there's a much bigger problem, a much bigger problem than Roman captivity and slavery. You know, this, more, this, um, this past week, I was uh, up early kind of reading some related passages to get ready for this sermon. And so I was uh, in, uh, in the living room sitting on the couch, and one of the boys came down, and he was kind of groggy and trying to shake off, you know, sleep. And he's sitting next to me, and I said, hey, bud, would you help dad understand what this passage means? And he's like, what are you, what are you talking about? You're, you do this for a living. You're supposed to know. And I said, uh, I just you know, humor me for a second. Help me understand what this means. Uh, it, it says in Luke 6, can the blind lead the blind? Um, how could you say to your friend, look at that sawdust in your eyes, that speck of dust in your eyes, while at the same time forgetting the plank in your own eye? You think you could help me think about what that means? And as I was reading it, his eyes were like, it was clear he knew exactly what it meant. And I said, do you, know, do you know what that means? And, you know, he kind of was like, no, I don't know what that means. And I said, is it you don't know what it means or you don't want to know what it means? And, and based on some of his interactions with his other siblings that week, I knew he did not want to know what that meant, <laughs> right? And that's so honest. That's where I'm at so many times in my life. I don't want to know because if I'm honest, to say that the main problem in the broken world that we live in, the main problem, the main thing that God is up to in his version of redemption is actually my heart, my sin problem, something inside instead of something external. I don't want to face that. And when I live that way, it creates a spiritual myopia. I can't see Jesus for who he was. And so what these disciples are essentially confessing, and you think about this, is that their version of redemption, all they really need is better circumstances. I don't need something big and glorious and new in my heart. I just need better circumstances. I need a new economic framework, politics that align with my values, a new national identity. If we had that, we could celebrate God's deliverance again. And God says, but that's not the freedom and the rescue that I have come to bring. I've come to do a much deeper work, a much more profound work for a much more profound problem. The slavery that I'm rescuing you from is not a slavery from circumstances. It's a slavery from the addiction that you have to sin. It's a heart problem because that's what ultimately is killing you. You see, what you and I often daydream about and what we hope in when life is hard is we just want better circumstances. We think my big problem is I need a better job. Or if you're in college or a high school student, I, I just need to know, what I need to know is what my future career will be one day. I need more financial margin. I need leaders that will align with my political values. I need a better marriage. I need a new marriage. I need happy healthy, obedient children. I need friends. I need to be included. This is the direction that, if we're honest, that we often go 
when we're feeling empty or frustrated, when we're walking along the road of life, so to speak, discouraged and disillusioned. But you see, if Christ doesn't deal with the deeper problem of sin, then none of these new circumstances are ever going to be enough. You know, think about how addiction works. We feel empty and we run to the drug or whatever it is and it elevates us. It gives us something transcendent. But then we need more because there's a tolerance factor that builds in. And then once that happens, then suddenly we begin, begin to become addicted because now there's these these side effects that are detrimental to my health, to what I've been running to, it starts compromising me. It starts destroying my relationships. The thing, when the thing that you run to initially to cope with emptiness, to find relief, when that thing then begins, begins to destroy you and ruin your life, that's when you're trapped. It has you by its thro your throat. It's called addiction, and that's called slavery. Listen, this is one of the easiest places, I think, that we go off track, to be seeing without seeing. John 8, Jesus lays it out there so clearly. Listen to who he's talking to. It says, to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you'll know the truth. It will set you free. And they said, free? Why would you say it in those terms? We're Abraham's children. We've never been slaves to anyone. And Jesus says what? Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so what this story is telling us is that even as post-resurrection followers of Jesus, even as people who point to Jesus and believe in Jesus, you are going to be prone to tie your hope to better circumstances. And you will be so apt to forget the bigger story. And to the degree that you lose sight of the glorious redemption of Jesus, his suffering, his death, and crucifixion, then what he's doing won't make any sense to you. And neither will his call to repent and to die and to follow him in the mission, to lose your life for others. That won't make any sense if life is about circumstances. You'll merely see yourself as a sufferer wanting help, but not a sinner needing salvation. And that's what robs us of joy and perspective because my freedom and my joy and the power that I have is directly proportional to seeing the depth of my sin and the profound nature of the redemption that I have in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's Christ's resurrect restoration of us. The glory is of his restoration, his suffering, his death, his substitution for my sin which is pervasive. This is an upside-down kingdom. And we don't want anything to do with it. Most of the time, my hope is tied up in just better circumstances. That's what I really want. Not Jesus, not the fullness of his redemption, and not the high calling to live in an upside-down kingdom. And so how do their eyes get opened to this hard-to-get-a-handle-on truth? How does this happen? This is number three. It's that we need to see Christ's cure for disillusioned disciples. And I want you to see that the first thing he does is he teaches them the right way to read the Bible. It seems like Jesus could have picked any way to reveal them. I mean, it would have been a lot faster to just be like, hey, guys, right here. You see it? Look at the... And that's not what he does. He, he takes his time. It's almost like 
Jesus is showing us that there's something of a journey that every disciple needs to go on, this slow awakening to the reality that my sin is much bigger and much more consequential than I want to admit, but also that every page of the Bible is ultimately about him. There's a journey to discovering that as well. And that's the lens that he's adding for them. And so it says in verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Jesus. Uh, I mean, you probably heard this before, but what Jesus is saying is he wants you to be cross-eyed when you read the Bible. He wants you to know that, yes, God's word is milk and it's meat and by it we grow up in our salvation, that it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. But he also wants them to know, and for us to know that from beginning to end, God's word is intended to increase our dependence on the saving mercy that God alone can provide. Mercy that finds its ultimate expression in the work of Jesus, that the Bible is about him and not about us. So how do you read the Bible? Now, most of you have probably heard this illustration before, but when we read the story about David and Goliath, what is the big moral of that? Is it the bigger they are, the harder they fall? No, that's not the moral of the story. Is it look at how God moves in great faith for the courageous leader who steps up when nobody else will? Man, God moves by faith in people like that. That's actually not what the story is about. And yet when we read scripture like that, it might inspire us momentarily. But in the end, it will crush us. Because you'll begin to realize, I'm not as courageous of a leader as I thought I was. And you'll think, I've got to be the one that steps up and fights the enemy. But really what's happening here, the great story is when you realize that the true hero is Jesus. That David is the smallest, the weakest of his brothers, the overlooked one. Because that's how salvation comes and moves throughout our world. In the most overlooked, weakest of places. That God's victory is won in the humility and weakness of Jesus. When we remember that David's battle with Goliath is pointing to this representation of Jesus. Where when David wins the battle, if he's strong, the whole army gets credit for that. Whatever's earned by the one is credited to the whole nation. And that the reason that God put all that together for his people to see is so that they could see and get a picture of what was to come in Christ. That what Christ accomplishes with his victory on the cross is given and shared with all who would believe in him. And so if you believe, if you read the Bible primarily thinking about you first, then for a little while you'll be inspired. But ultimately, it's going to leave you feeling guilty and condemned. And you'll look at it and you'll either be like the prodigal brother, the younger brother who runs away. It's too much. I can't take it. I got to get away. Or you'll be like the older brother. And it will sear your conscience with this self-righteousness. And that will affect the way that you relate to other people and to the Lord. And yet, what does Cleopas say happens for them as they begin to see the majesty and glory of Jesus in every story? It says their hearts burned within them. They ignited, they came alive, and they wanted more of Jesus. And so we're going to land the plane. Because at this point, 
where we're at in this story, they have not yet discovered Jesus. And so I want to bring this home and show you how it is the final key that unlocks every for them, everything for them. And it's this. It's a meal. The final key that unlocks the door for them and helps them recognize that this is Jesus is a familiar meal where Jesus takes bread. He blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them and it says that then their eyes were opened and they recognized him for who he was. Is that beautiful? I want you to hear what a pastor friend of mine says about that moment. It says, despite being a guest of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, at mealtime, Jesus performs the actions of a host. Just as he had, the feeding, just as he had at the feeding of the 5,000 and at the Last Supper, on each of these occasions, Jesus uses a meal to signify his fellowship with his people, as well as his faithfulness to provide for us what we cannot supply ourselves. So even in this moment, so beautiful. Jesus is up to something so much bigger. You remember what it said about Adam and Eve at the beginning of the story? They ate a meal. It's the first meal that we see. And when they ate that meal, things went badly. It says their eyes were opened. But guess what happens? They go spiritually blind. And here now is the first meal after the resurrection. And Jesus sits down and when they eat it, their eyes are now open again, and they can see God again as he truly is in his glory. That's what we lost in the garden through this meal. And Jesus is saying all throughout Scripture, I'm redeeming everything even through this meal. This is what happens when the elders get together at Mount Sinai with Moses. Jesus uses a meal at the Last Supper, and then he promises a meal at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all of our longings to be fully present with Jesus will be realized. And, when, and, and, and can you believe it? Jesus will serve us at his table where we get to eat and drink with hearts fully restored. This is such a great gospel. But here's what I think this means for us right now. And I just want to close with this. What this means is that we cannot do this Christian thing alone. This whole thing starts with two struggling disciples walking along and having a spiritual conversation. It means that we can't try to figure out Jesus by ourselves. It means that we're not supposed to try to think about this stuff on our own. We're not supposed to struggle with your doubt and your guilt all by yourself. We got to get with people, you got to get in a group. You got to find some people to talk about and prior, some people to talk with Jesus about and prioritize spiritual conversation. We are so good at talking about the news and politics and weather and sports, but really our hearts don't start to burn within us until we're talking about Jesus. Now, I, I just want you to know that oftentimes it's just scary for us because it reveals a shortfall, a shortcoming in my own life. I don't have much to say about Jesus because I haven't been reading very much about Jesus. I haven't been spending any time with him. It's hard to hear. But you see, they're struggling too. And if I can go into my discipleship group and tell the guys in my group, honestly, I am going through the motions right now. I'm a pastor. 
then you can do that too. You can start with right where you're at. I'm struggling. I just haven't been in the Word very much, and I need help. When we start to do that, when we start to live that way and orient our lives around the means of grace, something begins to happen. And I want you to see that the very things that Jesus is pointing to, Luke is going to show us them again in Acts 2. When the new church is devoting itself to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to being in homes together, this is all right there in this passage for us to enjoy. Jesus is saying the means of grace. You need the means of grace. And when these two disciples begin participating in the means of grace together, enjoying and discovering Jesus together, do you know what happens for them? They become so satisfied and free that they leave their plates and they run into the darkness back to Jerusalem to tell others about the good news and the light that they've just received. You know, I think that when we get together and we share Jesus together and we eat meals together and we prioritize group and spiritual conversation with one another and we see God's big plan of redemption and what he has done for our hearts, then I think that we too will have this light click on and we will be the ones that are ready to run out into the darkness and tell other people the good news as well. So let's pray that that would happen for us this morning. Father, God, thank you so much that you care about the places where we're struggling and discouraged and distressed. God, I think about your promises in Jesus. Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And yet we would say, God, that oh so often, though you may be walking with us, we can't see you. And yet, God, thank you for these promises, the promises of truth and love in the person of Jesus that you pursue our hearts and you woo our hearts and your mission is to restore our hearts even as we do common things like worship and eating meals and being together in fellowship. And so, God, I pray that you would bless this church. May we be a fellowship of people with a common mission and with a common Savior, and would it ignite our hearts that they would burn within us, and that we would desire to share the light and love of Jesus with others who are not yet, who, who do not yet recognize you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.